Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from Pillar 2 to the EU's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. Check out PwC's Policy on Demand news platform that provides in-depth insights and analysis on tax policy developments. Policy on Demand is now available for free at policyondemand.pwc.com. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're at PwC's Global Financial Services Tax Leaders Meeting in Paris, France, where I'm excited to have Will Morris back on the podcast. Will was recently named PwC's Global Tax Policy Leader, replacing Steph Van Weigel, who retired after a distinguished career with PwC. Will, congratulations and welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Doug, and I'm delighted to be here. All right, so let's start with Steph. Steph yeah. was the PwC Global Tax Policy Leader and uh, was with PwC for a, almost 15 years. He's an international tax professor at the University of Amsterdam and has served both the International Bureau of Fiscal Documentation and the International Fiscal Association, yeah. IFA, as we like to call it. Yep. Any departing thoughts for our dear friend, colleague, and partner, Steph, and his contributions to the world of international tax? Uh, well, yes, just speaking for myself, trepidation at stepping into such big shoes, but also gratitude to Steph for what he's done. I've, I've been at PwC only six years, um, but working with Steph has been a, a huge privilege. And he is, he's a legend in the tax field. Uh, and he is also just, he's the embodiment of good sense, courteousness. Uh, he's been a, a, a wonderful colleague, and uh, he's not disappearing from the tax world. As you said, he'll still be a professor at Amsterdam. So it's, uh, Steph has, uh, uh, it's been great working with him. Yes, very yep. measured, and really, totally. since I've been in this role for a little over a year now as the global ITS leader, have learned a tremendous yep. amount from him, and even before then, and I've always appreciated his wisdom and his measured guidance um, in the field of international tax. And you're absolutely right. He's not quite giving up uh, right. international taxation, but we'll be moving on from PwC, and we certainly wish him the best. Yep. All right, so, so let's dive into the material. And Will, this is an area that I'm convinced is not getting enough attention for international tax professionals uh, across the globe. There's just a ton going on in the world of international taxation, and frankly, a lot of things are getting lost in what I'm calling the current of Pillar 2. Yep. And we've certainly dedicated a lot of time to Pillar 2 uh, on this podcast, and frankly, I'm excited to explore another issue outside of Pillar 2, although there are, there are some intersections. So let's just start with what is the European Union's foreign subsidies regulation or what is being referred to as FSR? Because I think it's really important for any multinational organization to understand what FSR is. Right. Well, Doug, it's a great question. I mean, just to sort of reiterate some of what you said or reinforce it, I suppose, um, there is a huge bandwidth problem at the moment. There's no doubt about that. No, I mean, you talk about Pillar 2 sucking up, taking up all the bandwidth. Unfortunately, before Pillar 2, there was Pillar 1, which meant that people didn't pay attention to Pillar 2 um, until a little after they should have done. Uh, and now we're in a similar position with, um, with a number of other things which have come along, uh, particularly from, uh, from the EU. And if you look at the EU's uh, tax docket, the, the files, the dossiers, as they call them, there are a substantial number of them. There are over 10 which are active, uh, and many of them will actually have a significant effect. The FSR is not uh, actually a tax uh, file. Uh, this comes out of DG Comp. Uh, it's the um, uh, it's the folks who look after to state aid uh, and and subsidies and issues like that. And in fact, you know, this is uh, what this is in a sense. The foreign subsidies reg is an attempt uh, by the EU to essentially export um, the EU's state aid rules uh, outside of the EU. Um, 
It's interesting. It's a regulation. People say, well, don't they need a directive? And the answer is, no, they don't. Um, uh, this, the, the sort of um, the legal basis for this flows straight out of the European treaties. Uh, and therefore, um, there was a, uh, originally a, a white paper on this, I think, in 21. Uh, they decided it at, at the end of 2022. Um, uh, and once they adopt the regulation, which they did at the end of 2022, it comes into effect 20 days after that, which I believe is January the 12th. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then uh, we have uh, this regulation which comes into effect, which actually bites um, starting on July, on July the 12th. Uh, and it is, it's fully formed. Um, uh, it's, it's relatively lengthy. Uh, it's relatively complex. And as I say, it builds on state aid rules, but it also obviously has some twists uh, to apply that outside of the, uh, outside of the EU. So, so we did a, I did a podcast, several po several mm. podcasts ago with Edwin Visser, really going through a right. number of those yep. um, policy proposals and changes. And we really just touched on, on the FSR. Um, but maybe if you could remind us, right. what, what is state aid? And uh, frankly, I, I think many of us just haven't been as focused on that sure. over the last few years. And there was certainly a number of litigation, but really what is state aid? And then how are those concepts used for purposes of FSR? And what right. are some of those, what are the consequences? So state aid uh, essentially is the EU's attempt to uh, protect the internal market, which is to say that, you know, inside of the 27 countries of the union, um, that uh, all, country, all businesses are on equal footing. So it's an attempt to prevent countries giving subsidies uh, to favored corporations, uh, including state airlines. That was one of the things which, um, mm -hmm. uh, which tends to come up. Um, but uh, also to ensure that certain sectors don't get advantages uh, over other sectors. Now, there, there are some exceptions for, for example, for R&D uh, type activities. Um, but for the most part, it is relatively strictly enforced um, against national governments uh, and against corporations. And the concepts that they're building on here is that other countries equally don't give uh, businesses uh, advantages uh, outside of the EU to then come into the EU and take business from EU businesses, um, which can't, which can't uh, sort of access those. Um, so, you know, th there is a, now quite a body of law uh, on what constitutes state aid. Mm -hmm. Um, this is the majority of what the DG Competition um, Directorate, not the Tax Directorate, but the DG Competition Directorate does. Obviously, we've heard about it more in, rela you know, in relation to tax, uh, in relation to certain U.S. corporations which uh, have received tax advantages. Um, but that's what this does. It looks outside the EU. It says, has a business been given an advantage which enables it to come into the EU uh, and do certain things? We'll talk about those in a second. Um, you know, on a more advantageous basis. So what were the consequences for under the state aid rules if a particular country gave state aid versus what are the consequences under these new FSR rules? Yeah, well, it, it, again, it, it depends in the, there are different ways of, of doing it. You know, it can be related to mergers and acquisitions, so you can prevent the merger from going ahead. Under the FSR rules? On, uh, well, also under state aid. Um, but, but equally, uh, more commonly uh, in that, firstly, they'll shut down the subsidy. Secondly, they may require the repayment uh, of the subsidy. Uh, and again, that carries over into, into FSR, what they call redressive measures. Um, but essentially what it does is, uh, what the FSR does, is it looks at um, what they believe are incentives uh, which could distort um, the internal market, particularly in relation to two things. One is M&A uh, and the other is, uh, is public procurement. 
Right. And so my understanding is that the commission can exclude non-EU companies from engaging in both M&A deals or public procurements. Obviously, the EU does not have the authority to be able to shut down these type of what they define as financial contributions outside of the EU, unlike state aid. Right. Um, and so that, I think, is really one of the fundamental differences is that really the mechanism by which the EU can potentially enforce that is calling off deals or potentially preventing the engagement of certain public procurements, which seems like a pretty big big deal. Well, yes, except it can go broader than that as well. I mean, there are, there are two important things to remember. The first is, uh, and again, we'll get to this again, I think, a little later, is this does not just apply to... Um, uh, to non-EU headquartered businesses. This actually applies to EU businesses as well if they have business operations outside of the EU which also get the benefit of these subsidies because that then gives them advantages against other EU entities which might not, um, uh, which might not have that. In terms of what they can do, um, yeah, sure, it's preventing the M&A from taking place. Uh, it's um, essentially ensuring somebody doesn't get the public procurement. But there are things well beyond that. Um, uh, as well, they can they can require the repayment of the subsidy uh, in certain cases, and this will be familiar to to folks who know um, some of the tools that they have in the the technology company area. They can actually require access to networks, for example, which have been built with the advantage of these uh, benefits. So they have very very broad powers, very broad powers. Okay, so let's unpack some sure. of these then. First, wanted to just make listeners aware of the effective dates and then particularly <clears throat> notification and this whole pre-notification requirement and just really the compliance that's required. So we already mentioned that the law is in force already as of January 12, 2023 um, and applying from July 12, 2023. Right. So I, I want to state that again because yep. I think that has snuck up on a, on a number of us that these rules are effective from July 12, 2023. Which is not so far away. Right. And by the time we get this published, may already be after. Right. And so uh, very, very timely. So talk a little bit about the pre-notification and the notification obligations. And so generally, what should taxpayers be thinking about with respect to how do they need to comply, so to speak, with these particular rules and what type of information do they need to, to keep and share? Right. Well, the type of information that they need to keep and share is um, almost anything which could... Um, and again, we'll get to the definition in a second, which could be deemed to be a financial contribution, which is to say a subsidy or incentive. Um, and it's important to, to note that th these can be very, very broad. I mean, if you, if you look at the regulation, I mean, we, we think of tax incentives, okay? We know what those are. We think of subsidies. We have a pretty good idea of what those are. But there are other things as well. I mean, for example, it turns out that buying electricity uh, or gas from a state-owned company could count as a financial contribution. Now, obviously... Um, you know, you assume that that's not going to be in unless it's maybe it's subsidized for some reason. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, th this this can go, go very broad from the, you know, if we think of this from a U.S. point of view from a, for, for a second, um, we obviously have taxes at the federal level, which include incentives. We have taxes at the state level, which certainly include incentives. But we then have, you pick a number, nobody can ever seem to decide, but maybe 10,000, 12,000 local taxing jurisdictions right. who can give property tax rebates. Uh, and various to other municipalities things. and yeah, states absolutely. and cities, <clears throat> absolutely. So, you know, very broad. So people need to be thinking uh, about collecting that. The, um, it goes back three years. Um, so uh, it's going to be, you know, very difficult, I think, for people to collect that. And I think the Commission accepts that. I think they understand um, that a lot of this information is going to be quite hard uh, to pick up. Um, but then, you know, in terms of notification, when you know that the deal is going to happen... 
um, when the deal has happened. Um, you know, likewise, when you're engaged in the public procurement, you, can, you, you have to put in a notification then. When you think or, you know, when you believe, when you're planning for there to be M&A, you can, again, you can pre-notify at that point. Uh, the Commission has um, undertaken to commit a sufficient number of people uh, to this. Um, I can't remember exactly how many it is. Close to 100, maybe more than 100. Um, uh, the rumour is that they're having difficulty filling those positions right now. So again, how this will go right at the beginning uh, is unclear. But there is this absolute requirement to notify, um, and the penalties for not notifying are also very substantial. This is where you come up on the, um, you know, there's, whatever, is it 10% of uh, worldwide gross revenue? It, it is a substantial number. Yeah, we'll come back to that. Yeah, but yeah, I'm yeah. just, uh, if, if people weren't paying attention, the That's penalty right. pay, pay is, attention. <laughs> is 10% of right. global revenue yeah. for failure yeah. to, to comply with this. Yeah. And so my understanding is that the, the actual notification applies from October 2023. That's correct. And then the point you made is that there's the pre-notification that can be for up to, for the past three years. Right. And then my also understanding is that the investigations can go back, I think back to July 2018. Um, and so how, how does that work as we just think about maybe uh, help explain a little bit kind of the pre-notification and the fact that some of these, these investigations could be retroactive? Right. So... Um Again, you know, the, the, what we hope is going to happen um, and understand may happen is that there will be a bit of a rule of reason here because um, uh, otherwise, you know, people would be backing trucks up to, uh, to the commission and just sort of <laughs> dumping right. huge amounts of information on them. And I, I don't think that would be terribly helpful uh, to anybody. What the commission has said uh, in the regulations is that there are uh, a number of categories which are particularly dis most likely to distort the internal market. So one is a foreign subsidy granted to an ailing undertaking, so think a state airline, for example, or indeed a heavy manufacturing of some type. That's, that's one type. Uh, a foreign subsidy in the form of unlimited guarantee for debts and liabilities of the undertaking. Um, so again, that's uh, support for essentially a, a, a non-competitive uh, business to carry on. An export financing measure, which is not in line with the OECD arrangement on officially supported export credit. So that does not mean every export credit although there may be WTO issues, and there, are, there is a WTO uh, interaction with the foreign subsidies reg as well. Uh, foreign subsidy directly facilitating a concentration, which is to say uh, M&A, uh, and then a foreign subsidy enabling uh, an undertaking to submit an unduly advantaged, advantageous tender on the basis of which the undertaking could be awarded. So, you know, th these categories actually narrow it down um, quite a lot. And... Uh, what we think is that the Commission is going to focus on these, and indeed there are some rumours uh, uh, going around, which may have been confirmed by the time this comes out or not, um, that actually the, the information which has to be notified and reported um, will have to be detailed in relation to those categories, um, but may be aggregated um, in relation to, to the other categories, uh, and indeed may be aggregated in a sort of, we can talk tax for a moment, a sort of CBCR type of sense, which okay. is to say not, it doesn't have to be tallied precisely. Um, so, you know, it, it may be that there is, there's more of a rule of reason there. But even that having been said, uh, even if you look at those categories, um, you know, you're going to need, if the item that you receive is very large, you're still going to need to, to convince people that you haven't gotten an advantage mm -hmm. uh, out of that. So, you know, I, we, can, we can see some potential narrowing. But nevertheless, people need to be very aware that they need to try and collect this thing. And, it, you know, in terms of looking back, obviously, again, as I say, I don't think they're going to 
ask you to look at every property tax rebate you got or right. you know, sort of check the gas bill to check that there wasn't an implicit subsidy in there. Um, but with some of the larger items, yes. And it's also important to note there is one other thing that they can look at. <clears throat> and again, these terms are not... Uh, you have to be sort of into the EU stuff to, for these terms to make sense. Mm -hmm. But in addition to M&A uh, and to um, public procurement, there is also another which they call ex officio investigations, which essentially means investigations that they can start on their own. And they can look at there at pretty much anything that they want to. Wow. So if they see large subsidies in a country which are attracting, oh, I don't know, you know, sort of battery makers, for example, right. or something like that, then they can launch an investigation into that and they can ask for information. You were talking earlier about being able to investigate inside the EU and outside the EU. Um, they can do that. Um, they, have to, they have to have an arrangement. They have to have asked permission, essentially, from the, uh, a non-EU country if they want to carry on uh, those investigations outside the, outside the EU. But in certain cases, that may be forthcoming. So again, very broad-ranging, hopefully narrowed slightly, but we don't know yet. All right, so let me, I'm going to ask some questions that I think most of our listeners, sure. uh, particularly in the context of so what you've really been talking about is the definition of a financial contribution, Absolutely. and that is the terminology, yeah. the kind of the term of art that's used um, in these rules. So, you know, for, there are a lot of deals that involve U.S. entities, right? Yep. Whether a U.S. is a subsidiary with a non-U.S. parent, whether it's a U.S. parented group, pass-through, whatever the case may be. Um, one of the really big incentives that we frankly have spent a lot of time talking about on this podcast, more in the context of Pillar 2, is the Inflation Reduction Act. Indeed. Um, we also obviously in the U.S. have foreign-derived intangible income um, that generally applies to exports, for example. Do we have any thoughts or has the EU provided any guidance on two of these common areas of the tax law in the U.S., the Green Energy Credits from the Inflation Reduction Act or FDII, I mean, not just to name a couple, um, any thoughts on how how the EU may view those types of uh, regimes in the in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, so it's again, it's really interesting because as you know, there's been quite a lot of political fuss, in particular about the IRA. Um, uh, although the Europeans have, I mean, the European Union has now, or the European Commission has now, come up with its own ideas uh, on green subsidies as well. Um, so. Um, there are sort of mixed signals being sent here. Um, apparently, a European, official, a European Union official was um, talking about this uh, a few weeks ago and said, don't worry about the Inflation Reduction Act. He said, because um, that's not dealt with by the FSR, because there's a carve-out, as I was saying earlier, um, for things which are dealt with under the WTO, um, uh, the, uh, the sort of the, the countervailing measures and subsidies, mm -hmm. uh, ACSM, I think it's called. Um, uh, so don't worry about that. That, that. that will be dealt with under, under those WTO procedures instead. And as we know, the WTO isn't working at the moment because it doesn't have an appellate body. Right. Um, uh, it's not clear, however, that, that that's correct um, because what the WTO, if you look at the ACSM, what that deals with is export-related um, uh, subsidies, essentially, uh, support. Uh, and the Inflation Reduction Act is much more about, hey, come here, do it here. Right. Um, which and could be differentiated from really our for the foreign-derived intangible absolutely. income, which directly applies yep. to, to exports, for that's example, right. so, amongst I mean, other things. That, that's right. So, I mean, you know, FDII clearly also uh, inside this, potentially. Um, but again, going back to what I was just talking about, it does seem that if that is not directly linked to one of these, you know, five areas which are, quote-unquote, most likely to distort, then maybe it won't be in. Um, so you'd have to you'd have to keep track on it. Uh, and uh, the one thing, uh, just let me be very clear about this. 
Um, nothing that I'm saying about you know the possibility of aggregating this information does not mean that you don't have to collect this information because right. they can come back, uh, and if you don't have it, um, uh, retro collecting, if I can put it like that, is going to be enormously hard. Um, so you know there is still a big incentive to. Uh, again, to improve process. I mean, this is a sort of part of the pillar two discussion. Right. right? It's just, this is a whole nother just yep. compliance process yep. and query whether it's, it's somewhere between tax and legal, right? And we talk a lot about pillar two since right. we're between tax and data and all the information that's needed, just a, another really challenging compliance requirement. Well, that, that's an interesting point because, you know, I've had a, a number of clients say, um, from, ta from tax department say, hey, is this ours? Um, to which the answer is, well, it's not completely yours mm -hmm. um, because, you know, there's, there's legal, there's business development. Um, sure, there's finance, um, there's, there are, there's going to be accounting. Um, supply you, chain with su a potential public that's procurement. Right. Su supply chain, you know, all of these things. So there's going to have to be a cross-business, um, you know, uh, uh, organization, operation, uh, effort here. Um, but I also say, in the end, quite a lot of this is going to come down to the tax incentives. And therefore, you know, you need to be really heavily involved in this. And of course, you know, then there's the old thing about, you know, if everybody owns it, nobody owns it. Um, mm -hmm. So somebody probably has to, has to own it. But it is going to be a complicated thing because, you know, as with, let me go back to country by country reporting for a moment, you know, not, not all taxes flow into the tax department. Um, you know, the property taxes may well show up in, you know, sourcing or wherever it is. Uh, electricity prices will show up somewhere else. Um, uh, uh, sorry, taxes, utility mm. taxes, those types of things will show up somewhere else. So it's going to be hard to pin all of this stuff down. Um, but it is also, I think, unfortunately, going to be really important to do that. Yeah, and it feels like without additional guidance from the EU, even with respect to the Inflation Reduction Act, which you know you can, I think, make strong argument is not right. an export type right. subsidy. Um, and even FDII, that given the potential substantial penalties that we discussed, again, 10% right. of, yep. of top-line revenue for a company that could potentially be at stake, that you would guess the taxpayers would want to take a very conservative of, of approach. Right. And then to your point, it's just like, where do, you, where do taxpayers draw the line in trying to collect this information? That's right. And you know, one, one thing that I've heard recently is that while we're expecting what they call implementing regulations, which is to say how to do the notification procedures, all that type of stuff, we're unlikely to see major clarifications for at least a year. Um, so, you know, people will be, will be left to essentially get on with it. And um, what the regulation says is that uh, they will decide what's distortive and what's not. Um, and, you know, one of the few advantages of essentially backing the truck up was, okay, well, it's on them to, de to decide what, what's distortive and what's not. Um, if they go in, sort of with this narrowing, so just looking again at these, you know, the most likely to distort, that actually puts that back onto the business to decide what is and what isn't. So that actually raises a, you know, a different set of issues. Uh, and some of this stuff, again, is, is related to, to state aid rules, uh, is related to merger control. Um, so, you know, very, particularly for non-US headquarters, sorry, for non-EU headquartered businesses, very close coordination between EU experts uh, and those businesses is going to be very important because it is going to be almost impossible for somebody who is not into the EU process to understand what distortive might mean mm -hmm. uh, under those circumstances. So, it, you know, even even a narrowing is, you know, comes with uh, with challenges. 
Yeah, I know one of the questions that's been floated out there, just as another mm-hmm. example, is this idea of qualified refundable tax credits, kind of the above the line, oh, sure. so to speak, yeah. incentives as opposed to the below the line. So as we you know, compare the R&D credit, for example, in the U.S., um, which is non-refundable versus the uh, refundable R&D credit that is or is refundable in the U.K. Right. Um, is there any distinction that's made but, but between those or? No, I mean, and this is, I asked somebody about this um, uh, in a foreign government um, uh, a week or so ago, and the guy just shrugged and said, we well, the right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing. Um, and, you know, I think that's the case. It, it, undoubtedly, um, you know, all types of tax credits uh, which you know provide which provide a benefit would have to be recorded um, whether or not they're quote unquote good for pillar for pillar two you know whether as a practical matter that makes a difference uh, I don't know I mean one of the interesting points is that if you look at state aid for example one of the biggest issues that we have in the US uh, with credits in pillar two is the R&D credit um, but actually strangely or well, not strangely under the foreign subsidies reg the R&D credit might not be an issue um, because one of those exceptions from state aid is for R&D support. Uh, and therefore, you might have a, th- uh, a credit which is bad for Pillar 2 and good for the FSR. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you following this? Yeah, I, the, the tangled webs we weave. Indeed. All right. So wanted to, to just spend a little time talking about some of the consequences. So sure. we already mentioned that if parties fail to notify a notifiable transaction or breach other obligations imposed by these rules that the commission, the commission can impose a fine of up to 10% of their worldwide group turnover in the preceding financial year. So it is at least last year's earnings yeah. um, that they make that determination. And um, But there are other broad sweeping powers, blocking, they could potentially block a deal, yep. um, prevent a company from participating in public procurement, um, impose repayment, behavioral remedies or divestments, which you mentioned earlier, yep. or require companies to change their governance structure. Um, any insight on, frankly, any of those? And from a practical perspective, I mean, you had mentioned that they're already trying to hire people. Yep. But I mean, this just seems like such a massive undertaking with significant consequences that it kind of begs the question from a practical perspective is how is this going to be enforced? It's a great question. Um, the uh, And I, I fear the practical answer. I'll come back to that okay. um, a little later on. Um, one of the things that uh, one of my understandings about this is that it, it would prove very hard at this point to, to change the regulation itself. Um, but what they will try and do is within um, within the regulation itself, when they come out, you know, with these implementing regs, um, that they will try and use some of the wiggle room that they have uh, to make this easier. So they they can raise and lower, lower by some percentage some of the thresholds, okay. uh, for example. And they may also be able to do other things interpretatively. Um, but you know they. They are where they are, and as I say, they may be able to narrow the amount of information, detailed information that you actually uh, have to report. Um, you know, my guess is, as a practical matter, um, that they will only go after what they view as really egregious cases. Um, uh, the egregious cases they go after, I suspect that they will um, uh, go over with a fine-tooth comb, however. Uh, and obviously, the, the intention of, of many of these rules is not for everything to be investigated, is not for everything to... Um, to be looked at in mm-hmm. excruciating detail. However, it is to do enough of that to encourage everybody else um, to do the reporting uh, that they need to do so that there are essentially some examples made. Um, and while I expect you know, there to be a sort of soft start to this, uh, undoubtedly where they see um, you know, what they regard as, as particularly troubling 
uh, subsidies and incentives, they will go after them. And, you know, who knows? I mean, w one of the interesting things to, you know, if we come back in three or four years' time, one of the interesting things to see is actually, you know, how many M&A deals, how many public procurements did they disallow right. versus actually how many of these ex officio investigations um, have they undertaken and then taken action on the basis of that? Um, because many of the regressive measures are, are really most um, uh, aimed uh, at these ex officio investigations rather than in the M&A uh, and the public procurement where it's a simple, you know, sort of yay or nay. Um, uh, so, you know, we, we could actually see more action there. Yeah, and like on the large public deals, which need other types of regulatory sure. approval of the EU or the US or wherever the case may be, I mean, there's lots of yep. smaller private deals that get closed very quickly. And, you know, another practical question is, is how quickly can that review, does that review well, take place? No, I mean, that, that's a great question. And again, you know, they've committed to doing this fast, but even then, I mean, even some of the timelines which are in the guidelines, which, you know, look short in one sense, maybe you know, an eternity in, in deal space. And, you know, one of the things that, um, that people have been talking about, uh, you know, in the private equity space, for example, um, is that, you know, some of these notification requirements, obviously, they're not deal specific. They're actually, you know, across the entity. Um, so there may be lots of reporting, which is constantly being required uh, in, in groups which are, you know, highly acquisitive, highly uh, dispositive for that matter. Um, uh, and, you know exactly again how that's going to be how that's going to work is unclear because sometimes as you say the timelines are very very short on this um and um you know it's unclear at the moment that 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 the commission is going to have the firepower to be able to uh, uh to do all of this stuff so again they may need to uh, to come to type some type of rule of reason on it right and you had, you had mentioned, and we'll state again, this is, this is relevant for U.S. parented yep. groups, Asian parented groups, EU parented groups, if they have some sort of presence in the EU, um, right, to obviously subject themselves to, to EU law. Sure. Um, but what types of groups could potentially be impacted, right? This is more than just, you know, publicly traded multinationals. Oh, sure. No, no. I mean, this is, I mean, you know, there, is, uh, there are size requirements in this. Um, and you know, there's, there's one of them requires 500 million of revenue. Uh, others are focused in the procurement side, more on the on the side of the procurement. So I mean, you're not talking about um, you know small small SMEs, um, but where you're talking about revenue of 500 million, you're obviously talking below the pillar two level, for example. Right. Um, so you know, it's Wh not, which we think is somewhere in the scope of 10,000 something, companies, something like somewhere that. in that yeah. realm. So you're, of you, 750 <clears throat> million euro. That's right. And you know, again, if you look at the amount of act, I mean. You know, as we see across what we do and as others see across what they do, the amount of this activity is, is substantial, even in a quote-unquote quiet year. Um, so, you know, it is a, there are a lot of people. So it's, it's not, as you say, it's not just large public corporations. Um, it's also sovereign wealth funds. Mm -hmm. um, it's small corporations, private equity groups, um, you know, anybody who's privately held but large enough. Um, so a very broad range of, uh, of, of businesses pulled into this. All right. Um, and so, you know, just lots of challenges. And we talked about just the, the, the challenges with, with enforcement and the broad application. Sure. But um, what steps should, should taxpayers take? I mean, how from a practical perspective, because we already mentioned the diverse group of stakeholders. And this is, again, is a constant theme that we saw with Pillar 2 is that 
I think a lot of uh, organizations and enterprises look at the international tax folks yeah. of just like, all right, well, this seems to be some sort of international tax. And this is not a tax law as you started yep. off the conversation. This is, you know, a, a trade, what I would right. refer to as a, a trade law or something that impact, again, deals and, and procurement. Um, so what should ta- what steps should taxpayers take to, to start to get ready for this, given that it is applicable July 2023? Right. <laughs> I was going to say, day from 24 hours to 26. Right. Um, uh, actually, I, met, I figured out the way to do this the other day, because I, I had two invitations to the same call, and I didn't know which of them worked, so I dialed into both. And I was there twice, and that, <laughs> that actually solved many of my problems. Uh, putting, which is uh, challenging to do. Which is challenging to do, but... Um, <laughs> Look, the answer, again, as with so many of the other things that we've been talking about, comes down to data. You have to have control over, over your data. And this, this, is different ty- this is different data. Uh, and because, you know, as we were saying, this can go down to very low levels of you know, different types of taxes and incentives. Um, it's going to be, and, you know, let's hope, um, as I say, that, that there is a sort of soft uh, start to this. Um, but it's getting you know, the collection mechanisms set up as soon as possible. And again, this is across the globe. This is mm-hmm. not just in one country. This is across jurisdictions within a group. Um, so, you know, doing the best you can as quickly as you can do it. Uh, I think it's also, uh, uh, and you know, this is not meant to sound patronizing. Um, it really is not, but it, take it seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, because this is not something that's happening over there. This is actually something big. And, you know, you may think, uh, at this point, yeah, I do no business in Europe. Why would I care about Europe? I just don't need to collect this. In three years' time, uh, if you're doing, you know, if you see an attractive opportunity and you don't have this stuff, you know, you're going to have a, you, you could have a really difficult time of it. So it's take it seriously. But, but again, just, you know, maybe if you're already in the ERPs, sort of fixing it for pillar two, you just, you know, you start adding this stuff as well. Yeah, and I think, I mean, a lot of this information, frankly, may be outside to, oh, sure. and to, to an ERP. I mean, the, the point just kind of actually shook me a little bit of like even multinationals that are not yet invested in Europe yeah. may consider putting Absolutely. some process in place to the extent that they could be investing yep. in Europe or procuring from, from Europe or... Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it feels a little bit like pillar two in the respect of there's an operational readiness component. Yep. Like we have to let the business people, the tax people or the legal people who are aware of this need right. to let the business people know. Right. So whether it's your deals teams, your That's procurement right. teams, yeah. others, and then putting that stakeholder group, so to speak, together um, is really probably one of the first priorities. And then to your point, then, all right, trying to take inventory of what could be considered a financial contribution, understanding, you know, what the kind of technical risks are, what is, what's out, what's in, what's out, obviously could be a a significant undertaking. I think from a practical perspective, companies are given all the other requirements, legal and tax requirements, frankly, are going to say, well, we'll deal with this when we have to. And the challenge will be like, listen, if a deal is closing in a short amount of time, do you have the appropriate information yep. to apply these notification requirements, knowing that if taxpayers do not comply with the notification requirements, they have this massive penalty. Right. So well, real, or, or just a no-go. Or just, or they can just, like on a deal, yep. they can potentially squash the deal yep. without the appropriate notifications. And then I think the other big challenge will be kind of coordinating between the EU experts right? And then non-EU experts. So I can already imagine my phone ringing, uh, trying to understand some of the various 
incentives that are offered in the U.S. and yep. I use that word loosely right. about whether they whether they are considered a, a financial contribution. Yep. And then this whole point of things being covered by the WTO that this is not intended to kind of usurp the WTOs. Right. Frankly, just adds a lot more technical uncertainty about well, what should you include and what shouldn't you sure. include, and given the the situation with the WTO. Yep. Uh, and you know, and then this question about well, what what is distortive? What fits inside of these categories? And you know, are they going to interpret that consistently? Uh, you know, could it change over time? Um, you know, and, and and in some cases, that ten-year look back as well. Um, this is this is a big deal, uh, and it, it has uh, in part because because it was a regulation, because you know, when they when they agreed to it, uh, after not a huge amount of publicity, um, it was effective almost immediately. Um, it's been very different from the Pillar 2 directive um, process where, you know, we've, we had a year leading up to the directive actually being agreed while they argued about, you know, about it. Uh, and then, you know, we have another year while they, while they seek to implement it. We have none of that luxury here at all. Right. I mean, it, it feels kind of stepping back for a moment as we kind of <laughs> conclude today's conversation yep. that there is a war on tax incentives. Right, it, it, and, and from a policy perspective, I think one could argue it's, that it's that a, it's it, almost ideological in a way. Actually, right. it, it is the idea that these things are bad, um, and you know you see it in Pillar Two, right? Um, and you see it here, and I mean, in a sense, here it is at least better explained, which is that you're trying to level the playing field. Uh, it's just that leveling the playing field outside of the EU becomes a whole lot more complex because you're looking at the rest of the world. Um, but yes, there, there are. You know, the, yes, I think people are. So it begs the question, Will, and I, I know the answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> is so? Does this mean that the competition for foreign direct investment is is coming to an end, and the ability <laughs> for countries to be able to try to compete for investment? And and I love the example from a U.S. perspective, just because we see it a lot. Yep. Um, that municipalities and cities, right, and states are constantly competing for that next big plant or that next big headquarter or that next big office. And that is obviously just part of how business is done in the U.S. as companies think about location choices for any type of investment. Um, and then obviously that also uh, occurs around the globe. And so are we going to see this stop now, multi, you know, uh, for, for multinationals and across the globe? I think I can say with total certainty the answer to that is no. <laughs> will it change shape? Yeah, of course it will. Um, right. Has it changed shape over the past 10 years? Yes. The past 20 years? Yes, it has done. Uh, and, you know, I mean, at a certain point, this, this is a sort of maybe a philosophical note uh, on which to end. Um, you know, some countries have enormous advantages their size, the, the richness of their market, you know, already exist, existing infrastructure, which allows them to essentially attract investment um, without having to directly incent companies. Other countries don't have that advantage. And you know, I think that we need to come back and consider exactly what the balance should be, because mm -hmm. I don't think we have it quite right yet. Yeah. And I mean, to, to just be very frank, I mean, the issue is for developing countries, they use these types of incentives. Yes. And we've seen this around the globe, how various countries are, have moved or are moving from developing to develop yep. by attracting this investment. Right. And the point is, is that Pillar 2 and then now the FSR 
really disincentivizes or creates issues with these types of incentives and just creates another challenge for developing countries as they're trying to, to raise up their economies. Right. To be continued. To be continued. <laughs> so, Will, uh, a fascinating discussion. And it was really driven from that that podcast that I did with Edwin. Yep. And I felt that. And I heard a number of comments from listeners on this FSR. Kind of, hey, can you double click on that? Right. And uh, this seems like a big deal. And uh, I've certainly spent some more time getting smart on this. And I know that you're always kind of have your... Uh, um, ear to the tracks of understanding yep. what's coming down and uh, so appreciate your wisdom guidance and this is certainly will, something we'll keep an eye on and the implementing regulations i think are going to be very important yep. and to the extent that we have any eu policy listeners hopefully they understand the challenges that taxpayers have with complying with this and hopefully we see some favorable guidance in that regard i hope so too anyway. all right well, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, Will Morris, PwC's Global Tax Policy Leader. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. Stay tuned for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.